the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business podcast. I'm Cliff Taylor, standing in this week for Kieran Hancock. On today's show, I'll talk to Sebastian Barnes, Chair of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. I'll ask him what we've learned about the economic impact of COVID-19, how bad it is relative to what we feared could happen back in March, how different scenarios for the months ahead could play out and what the government should be prioritising for the budget next month. But first, this week brought more bad news for our aviation industry and particularly for regional connectivity. To talk about all this, I'm joined by Irish Times business reporter Barry O'Halloran and also by Dee Ryan, Chief Executive of Limerick Chamber of Commerce. Barry O'Halloran, you had a recent report about the possibility of Aer Lingus moving to Airbus planes from Shannon. Give us a bit of background on that, please. Yeah, hiya, Cliff. Um, What's happening is that Aer Lingus is considering moving two Airbus A321 long-range craft that it would normally use to fly to Boston, New York and Heathrow from Shannon. It's considering moving them to uh, one of six UK airports. Manchester and Edinburgh have been named as possible candidates, but there are uh, four others. At least that's the, the, the word on the ground in the industry, if you like. Um, this would wouldn't necessarily spell the end of Aer Lingus's Heathrow and transatlantic services from Shannon, but it would certainly throw a question mark over them. The understanding is that Aer Lingus will fly uh, transatlantic services from whatever UK airport takes the craft. That service will start in early 2021, I would assume, with an eye on the 2021 tourist season. And if if conditions were to allow it, um, it seems that Aer Lingus would be prepared to base other craft at Shannon to fly possibly Heathrow, possibly transatlantic. But right now, the, the two craft in question are sitting on the ground. They've been mothballed since March for reasons we all know about. Um, they obviously cost money even while they're sitting there empty on the tarmac. So Aer Lingus has to do something with them. And these UK regional airports are reportedly keen to get them and are bidding for them through a formal process. But I'm right in saying that no decision has been announced yet, that this is, this is still, still in the mixer, so to speak. Yeah, that's, that, that's pretty spot on, Cliff, actually. Um, no decision has been made. They, I mean, that could mean that no decision will be made. But by the sense of it, they, they are in talks. They, they, they began a formal process with these airports. They, they, sought ten, they sought bids, they sought tenders. So, I mean, that indicates the seriousness of the talks. Yeah, I see... Um TD Joe Carey, local TD, saying today that he believes that there will be government support to allow the services from Shannon to continue, but that may or may not involve the Airbus aircraft. Is that uh, is that what you're saying? Well, I don't know. Well, the, the point I'd make in relation to the craft themselves is that they're 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 two of a batch. I think eleven of these craft that uh, Aer Lingus is buying. The industry and Aer Lingus itself are, are kind of quite excited or were quite excited about these craft in, in different times because they basically offer you the sort of low cost of short haul craft like the Boeing 737s with which we're all familiar. 
um, but allow you to fly long haul. So they would have, Aer Lingus was intending to use them to fly transatlantic services that they could offer at uh, low cost to travellers from both here and from the rest of Europe who would connect through Dublin mostly, but also through Shannon. Um, so I would have thought that the loss of those craft per, in particular would be, well, I, I would have thought it would be very significant. Okay. And I suppose maybe it, it goes back to the wider point after the IAG takeover that Ireland might lose some of its routes and, and some of the some of the routes some some passengers would be routed through the UK instead of flights directly from Ireland. Well, the irony there is that rather the opposite happened uh, after the IAG takeover in that passengers from the UK were being routed um through uh, Dublin particularly to onto long haul services offered by Aer Lingus and Aer Lingus actually increased a lot of its services since um the IAG deal was done more or less exactly 5 years ago actually. But the COVID-19 pandemic and the government response to that have obviously created a completely different environment now. Yeah, OK. D. Ryan, Chief Executive of, of Limerick Chamber, there's obviously a lot of comment and concern locally about the possibility of, of this happening. Yes, that's right. As you can imagine, the story that emerged this week of this potential move by Aer Lingus has left shockwaves throughout um, the business community here in the Midwest. And we have considerable concerns about um, what the potential repercussions for us in our economic, not just our economic recovery, but our ongoing economic development potential would be if we were to lose that kind of connectivity out of our regional airport. And what kind of implications are we talking about, I suppose, not only for Limerick, but for, for the West of Ireland in general? Obviously, obviously tourism, obviously connectivity for business. What are your members saying? Yeah, well, if you think about it, in terms of employment numbers um, by sector, industry and within that manufacturing, followed by hospitality and tourism are the largest employment sectors in the Midwest. And so obviously our international connectivity through our regional airport, Shannon Airport, is critical um, for allowing those industries to thrive and to, to prosper. Now, as a business community, Limerick Chamber and the Chamber Network throughout the Midwest would be highly aware of the uh, significance of our regional airport as a key growth enabler for our regional economy. And so together, we actually published, um, we commissioned uh, a piece of research by Copenhagen Economics last year, and we published the findings and recommendations from that report that really called on the government. We, we used it as, a, as, a, as an opportunity to to draw attention to the disproportionate aviation connectivity that we have in this country that comes through our capital airport and how that is an anomaly when you look at our European counterparts and to draw attention to um, the, the need to adjust policy in order to address that imbalance. And obviously a risk now that COVID-19 and its fallout could, could make that worse. Well, for Shannon in particular, we had real concerns coming into this year anyhow because um, in we're, we're facing Brexit, which was going to pre-COVID have a massive impact on our economy. And London Heath, London is our only European hub currently that that Shannon has daily business connectivity to. So we were already um, lobbying government and uh, working with uh, our regional airport to try and identify alternative um, routes and alternative European hubs for that critical European um, connectivity from the region. So to hear this news that potentially we might be losing um, 
that the, the, the stability of not losing, but the stability of that connectivity may be threatened in a post-COVID environment um, by the movement of this aircraft is really, really worrying for us. And obviously, as well as the connectivity to Europe, there's the issue of uh, American tourism as well, which has been a mainstay of, of the region, I guess, for many years. Yes. And, you know, um, obviously the flights coming in from, from the, the transatlantic flights are critical, but I would actually draw your attention to, to the higher value passenger on those flights. So our interest as a business community isn't just in um, tourism and tourism being the only industry that benefits from connectivity into our regional airport. We're, we're really aware of um, the ease of access to the region um, from our the from the multinationals in in the area to back to their HQs in the US, we know they tell us every time that we uh, hear an announcement of either further investment, expansion of job numbers, or a new um, business coming to the region, they will always point to that connectivity through Shannon Airport as being one of the key factors in their decision to locate here. So for us, when we look at Shannon, we're not just thinking about it in terms of. Um, it's a potential to boost tourism and our, and for us to sell our tourism product in the in the western midwest but also critically for its ability to um, attract investment into other industries and to grow our our entire regional economy mm. okay um Barry there's a wider issue as well of course for the for the aviation sector and there was a report task the task force for aviation recovery reported recently uh, and made various proposals on what should happen. Uh, how do you see that panning out now over the next uh, the next couple of months? Obviously, this is something the government is going to have to face into uh, among the demands for money uh, it's facing over, over the autumn period. Well, I would say that things are looking pretty grim, Cliff, actually. Um, first and foremost, Irish air traffic is around 10% of what it was last year. Well, it's maybe 11% of what it was last year. And that's borne out by CSO statistics that came out uh, earlier this week on inward and outward passengers. It's kind of 220,000 flying in versus more than 2 million uh, this time last year. At the same time, Europe is at close to about half of what it had last year. So the recovery in Europe has been a lot faster uh, the government's own travel restrictions are playing a big part, according to the industry, in slowing this down. So, in essence, what's happened is we've lost 90% of our airlinks to the, to the rest of the world, um, which, as D. Ryan has outlined very clearly and uh, pretty cogently, I would say, um, are really, really important, not just to regions like the West and the Midwest, but to the entire country. Our entire economy is, all, is virtually built on our connections with the outside world. So from that point of view, it doesn't look good at all. The government is going to have to face into this. It's got to do two things, essentially. It's got to look at how we get ourselves in line with the rest of Europe, which is kind of at 47% of traffic at the moment, um, you know, within a reasonable time frame. And it all has also got to look beyond that. Airlines are now looking at what they're going to do next year. They're not going to fly here if they think people won't come here uh, or won't depart from here. So that means essentially that I think we're probably looking at a scenario where we can write off a big chunk of 2021 in terms of a tourism year and maybe in terms of even um, people coming in to, to, to view this country as a possible location for investment. Um, 
there may be some, there may be other developments of vaccine, rapid testing, other things that can help to speed up that process. But right now, from this juncture, the the two local carriers who are our most important, they're responsible for more than two thirds of, of all traffic here and a, a disproportionately large volume of short haul traffic. They're now reviewing what's happening in the market currently. When they're finished that, they'll start planning for next year. And if they're planning for next year in an environment like the one we have right now, I don't see them being terribly willing to place craft to expand or increase what they have here. Um, and I think that we could actually see them cutting capacity again, which both of them have been doing. Sure. And calls in that task force report for various assistance packages for the industry uh, for supports based on uh, the number of passengers flying for liquidity supports um, but really you know is there a point in doing that if the government guidance is still on people uh, you know not to travel uh, I, I don't believe that there is um, I mean if you tie support to passengers well you'll find that there aren't too many passengers first of all but there's a, there's a bigger question here, and th- this is where the political fudge comes in. It's about preserving jobs in airlines and preserving routes, but at the same time, stalling on the issue that is, that is um, playing a big part in preventing them from carrying passengers on those routes and keeping people employed in the first place. So I think the politicians really have to face into that. Um, aid is a good idea if it's temporary and if it gets us over a hump. But, you know, we spent an awful lot of money aiding airlines or an airline in this country um, back before liberalisation um, uh, in, the, in the 90s. And that really didn't work out terribly well. Allowing businesses to do what they do and allowing airlines to do what they do uh, and get on with it is really the solution to the problem. Aid may certainly plug a gap and it may certainly help to preserve people's livelihoods and on that basis alone it should be welcomed but it is not a long-term answer to this question. Sure. Uh, D. Ryan from a business point of view and looking at the national picture is there frustration in the business community about the government uh, guidance on travel and, and, and the fact that the industry here as Barry has said is, is lagging well behind the rest of Europe? I wouldn't describe it as frustration. Um, I think that there is an understandable, uh, people can see the tension between the public health uh, guidance and the recommendations, some of the recommendations of the Aviation uh, Recovery Task Force. And certainly from our perspective, we would be saying to the government, yes, implement them. Please implement the report uh, recommendations in full when the public health guidance on travel changes. However, in the interim, we're seeking an an urgent meeting with the Minister for Transport to discuss what plans can be put in place to protect the connectivity to the island as a whole, and in particular, obviously, to our own regional airport here in Shannon. But we're looking at at what's happening across uh, the the EU. And, you know, we notice that um, within countries such as Germany and Austria and France, um, the government has actually stepped up now and put its hand in its pocket and given either a straight bailout, as they did in Germany, um, giving 9.9 billion to Lufthansa in return for a 20% shareholding, or uh, a combination of grants and uh, loan guarantees, as they did in Austria, with 150 million going in a grant and 300 million going in a loan guarantee to Austrian airlines. We think that this is the conversation that we need to be having right now, that we need to put those plans in place, and crucially, that we should seize this opportunity to reimagine 
international connectivity into the island. We need to actually, if we could, and, and you know, within this, this horrible um, experience of COVID and the pain and suffering that it's causing to households around the country, we have to seize the opportunity to, to reset how we want the country to grow and the opportunities for um, capitalising and fully um, developing regional um, economies. And so we would be saying to the government, now is the time to, yes, put a, put a package together and to, to look at doing supports into our two main um, carriers, Aer Lingus and Ryanair, in order to protect that international connectivity that we have. But in, when we're doing that, Crucially, we need to adapt to attach conditional, conditionality to regional connectivity, not just going back to the connectivity that we had in the past, but also let's request and let's make it um, get a commitment from the airlines that they will put on the new routes that we require in order to see our regions flourish. So a bailout should come for the airlines, but it, it should be on the basis that they sign up for, uh, for serving routes in and out of regional Ireland. Exactly. If as a country we have decided that Project Ireland 2040 is where we want to go, that we really believe in um, regional economic development, that we're truly committed to investing in um, the other four cities in the country being the engines for economic growth for the whole country, for the benefit of the whole country, then we have to actually put our money where our mouth is. We need to back the airlines and incentivize them to give us that connectivity because it's not happening organically. It's not happening organically. And the, currently, the other smaller airports in the country don't have the capacity to compete in the same way that Dublin can for the, for the routes that we would like to get. So let's actually use this as an opportunity to incentivize that connectivity. And let's also use it as an opportunity to attach some carbon emission uh, target, uh, targets to any bailout. They've done that in Austria. They set a target for... Um, for Austrian Airlines to reduce their total emissions by 30% by 2030. Do you get any um, sense, Steve, that these kind of messages are being heard in government or are being considered? As Barry has mentioned, we understand from uh, Deputy Joe Carey that there is a commitment at government level to work with the carrier Aer Lingus in this case, but we believe they'll have to also talk to Ryanair and do the same thing there to support, um, to support them through this period. Obviously, our international connectivity is far too important to let those airlines fail. So uh, that's the sense that those conversations are being had. We want to get in now when I've requested a meeting with Minister Ryan to discuss what those packages should look like. Our view as a business community on what conditionality we'd like to see attached to it. And also to have that conversation about about, uh, resetting the aviation sector, about actually developing national aviation policy that's in line with our stated policy of balanced regional development in order to truly back up that aim of balanced regional development. Uh, But first, isn't it the case that we need the green light for people to recommence travelling? Or is it a kind of chicken and egg type situation? I think like the restrictions that we have on uh, international travel at the moment will be dramatically eased once a rapid test comes uh, comes down the line. And the, the conversations being had are that's just a matter of months away. So this is a short-term pain. Let's use this time really productively um, to take a, a strategic view of what we want to see um, when uh, the airlines emerge from this crisis and what we'd like to see in terms of our connectivity for the whole country. Barry, quicker testing and tracing. There's been some commentary that we're not seeing it here to the same extent as we're seeing in other countries. Is that one of the crucial things for getting the travel sector back up and running again? 
It's it's one of a number of keys, certainly, by the sounds of it. Um, they've been using it pretty effectively in Germany, I'm told. Um, and we don't have it here. And it, it, this is another area where we we've we've uh, we've we've appear we appear to lag lots of other uh, of our trading partners in the EU, and that we we don't seem to be able to keep up with developments like that. I think certainly it would help. It should certainly. Um, help eliminate or, or mitigate the need for these very punishing 14-day uh, self-isolation or quarantine periods that the government is demanding of travellers from virtually all our key trading partners. So, yeah, it, it, anything of that nature that can be used to, to ease that, I think, is to be welcomed. But we need to get to work and we need to do it. She is right in the sense that there is a good opportunity here to, to reshape long-term aviation policy. But in the short term, we actually need to have aviation in order to have a policy to determine what happens to us in the future. And that has to be the first priority. D. Ryan of Limerick Chamber of Commerce and Barry O'Halloran of the Irish Times, thank you very much for joining us. Stay with us. After a short break, I'll talk to Sebastian Barnes, Acting Chair of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, about the latest forecasts for Ireland's economic recovery from the COVID crisis. At Davy, we know uncharted territory can be a challenge. We've been in business since 1926, and since then, we've advised many different clients through many global and national crises. Some will seek comfort in the safe and familiar, while others will embrace the opportunity to try something new. Throughout the years, we've not only listened to our clients, we've got to know you personally, helping us advise you on a financial life plan that suits you best. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. Janie Davy, Trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with me, Cliff Taylor. Sebastian Barnes, Chair of the Irish... Fiscal Advisory Council, thanks for joining us today. Uh, first of all, I wanted to ask you, in your latest assessment of the government's budgetary policy, you looked at three scenarios a couple of months ago in terms of how the economy might play out, a mild scenario, a, a central scenario and a severe one. What are your thoughts now, a couple of months later, in terms of what's the most likely outcome? So I think we have learned quite a lot over the past few months. I think what's encouraging is that if you look at the macro outturns if you look at what's happening to consumption i think we're probably much close we're probably somewhere between the mild and the central scenario mm-hmm. um, so that doesn't mean the se- severe scenario is not going to happen it's still a risk but i think it we have learned quite a lot about about the public health situation uh, and we've learned quite a lot about how the economy has responded which has probably been better than we thought so i'd say we're probably somewhere between the mild and the central scenario what about the risk of further shutdowns further restrictions even if they aren't full shutdowns, there is talk of you know sectors opening and closing, regions opening and closing as, as the numbers ebb and flow in the months ahead. Is that something that would concern you? I think that is a big concern. I think to the extent that we feel more positive that's about what's happened, that's what's happened over the past six months, which is things have been more resilient than we thought. But the big question has always been what's going to happen in the autumn. And there, I think if we look at what's happening in Ireland, what's happening to other countries, there are clearly big risks around around the COVID situation. I think it's much less likely than we probably thought back in May that there'd be another big full lockdown. But of course, that can't be excluded. But I think what we can envisage is all kinds of restrictions that are going to have an impact uh, on the economy. Uh, And it could well be that, you know, the level of activity does actually fall again 
uh, if things were to deteriorate. So we're still in quite a difficult situation. Uh, and of course, the big other big question is is how companies are going to respond. You know, they've been under a lot of pressure for a long time. A lot of them must have burnt through quite a lot of cash. So we don't know how vulnerable and how long they can survive in the current situation. So your central scenario was looking towards a, a fairly healthy, I suppose, rebound in the economy next year. Do you still think that's likely or do you have concerns about that? I still think as a central scenario, that's probably a pretty good place uh, to start start from. I think there are lots of challenges. Of course, even in that central scenario, we have a big, strong recovery, but things still remain fairly weak. Unemployment still remains fairly high. So it takes us quite a long time. It takes a couple of years to get back to the level that we were going into the crisis. So um, so, so I think... Um, uh, I think that is 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 probably quite a likely scenario. But as I said, there are still risks on both sides. And there has been talk, I mean, various letters have been used to describe the possible shape of what we're facing into, V-shaped recoveries, U-shaped recoveries. And most recently, uh, the letter K has come into it in the sense that some parts of the economy may recover pretty quickly, but other, others may continue to head downwards. Is that kind of distributional issue likely to be a, a big factor in the Irish economy, do you think? I think I think that's absolutely right. I think what we were seeing, and perhaps what we hadn't fully anticipated, was that some sectors have recovered quite quickly. Some of them are actually doing really well as people have moved from from say one form of spending to another. But there are these other sectors which are likely to be made, remain disrupted for a very long time. You know, particularly the ones that are, require sort of face to face interactions, particularly things like restaurants and hotels. That they seem to have done quite well over the summer, but as the health the health situation were to get worse, you know, we don't know how people are going to respond. And so I think that's a really big challenge for policy as well. So in terms of sort of stimulus and things like that, you know, often we think about that as, as helping the whole of the economy. But actually we have a situation which is very differentiated where we have some sectors that are going to be struggling along some sectors that alongside some sectors that are doing quite well. So I think that's a very complicated environment. How should the government approach that, Sebastian? Obviously there are are uncertainties about whether some companies may be able to open at all. There are uncertainties in terms of travel and tourism. How can the government try and find its way through the implications of that and, and the spending implications in supporting those sectors? So I think there's a number of levels. And we talked about, as we talked about in our May report, I think there is a need for, for support that's essentially meant to help those sectors that are facing very big difficulties, potentially for really quite a long time. Uh, and so some of the targeted measures, and I think in that context, the extension of the um, employment wage subsidy scheme, I think is very important and providing some certainty to businesses uh, for a number of months ahead that that support is still going to be there. But at the same time, we're sort of entering a new phase. And for those parts of the economy that are, that are open, that are functioning again, but where demand is still weak because of, of uncertainties, because of unemployment, uh, the need to have a more, more focus on stimulus, a sort of broader support for spending, uh, I think is going to come come to the fore a bit, uh, particularly as we come towards the budget. So, as you say, coming towards the budget next month, what would be the pointers you would you would give to the government about what they need to do in this budget, given the huge uncertainties they still face? I think around COVID, I think there are really these two issues. I think one is making sure they've got a good system to support the economy, that supports sectors that, 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 that may be struggling uh, for a while. Of course, there may be a need, you know, some of those activities may not come back and then there's a need to support workers to, to train and to find new jobs and activities. But I think supporting companies, uh, supporting the economy is going to be, remain a big challenge. They have, a, have something that stretches to... To, to, to the end of March next year. Uh, maybe it's too early actually to extend that, but I think they need at least to anticipate that there is likely to be a requirement to do something in that area for that, those parts of the economy uh, beyond then. 
Um, and then, of course, I think the, the, the general fiscal support, uh, we called in May for a sizable fiscal stimulus, which is really covering both of those things. But I think that need for sizable stimulus, particularly, for example, on the public investment side, uh, is going to remain. And I think this is a good time uh, for the government to be addressing that. So pushing forward with the National Investment Programme priorities, housing, environmental projects, is, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I think this this is so. Those things we know uh, uh, have big big spillover benefits uh, to the rest of the economy. They'd also help to uh, tackle some of these long-standing issues Ireland has, uh, for example, on the housing side, but also some of these environmental needs that, that, that need to be met. And obviously, construction—it's it's not quite clear, I think, how the crisis has affected construction. But to the extent that you know new projects don't don't get taken on board and things like that, it's actually the ideal time for the government. Uh, to, to be investing in these areas, to making sure that those workers, are, their skills are being used uh, to good effect in the economy. And the government has also promised in October to publish a national economic plan looking out over the next few years. What are the kind of issues it faces in trying to stabilise the public finances after the huge spending and the hit to taxes that we've seen uh, because of the COVID crisis? So, so as we set out in May, a lot still does depend on, on these different scenarios. But in pretty much any scenario that you look at, there is going to be a need once the stimulus period is, has taken place, once the economy has got back to some kind of new normal phase, there is going to be a need uh, to consolidate the public finances. There's likely to be a permanent shortfall in revenue. And that's going to have to be met, up, met in one way or another, whether that's by raising taxes or whether it's by... Um, uh, reducing spending in, in some areas. And, and that's inevitable. The big question is the size, and we don't really know very much about that. Today, though, to the extent that things have worked out maybe a little better than expected, maybe that means that requirement's a bit less. But at the same time, I think the government's going to have to articulate over the, you know, what its plans really are over the next five years, uh, how it's going to meet the, the ambitions that were set out in the programme for government. Uh, there's already a lot of additional pension spending that's coming down, down, the, down the road. Uh, as we know, just as the population ages, something we, we talked about in July in the, in the report from the council. There are also things, for example, the implementation of Slauncher Care, uh, the meeting of the climate change target. All of these things, really a plan needs to be worked out about how these things uh, are going to fit together and how these different things, different commitments are going to be balanced. And that's a big challenge. Obviously, at the moment, there is a lot of uncertainty. So perhaps it's too much to expect too much detail. But I think clearly having a a plan that, that, that would be robust across different outcomes in the economy that would allow that balance to be achieved um, would be really important. Is it inevitable that uh, taxes are going to have to rise to pay for some of those projects and also for the ageing of the population that the council has, has highlighted? And I think whether it happens or not is, is obviously a matter of political choice. But, um, but in terms of, of um, fiscal sustainability, uh, I, think it's, you know, I think it's fairly obvious in the sense that if, if you want to increase spending, uh, the money is going to have to come from somewhere. Um, and that's, you know, taxation is, is very, very likely to be part of that story. And I think one of the concerns we had is a number of commitments that were made that effectively took some parts of spending off the table. Uh, took some parts of, of, of tax, uh, particularly around income tax, off the table. And that's obviously going to make it a little bit more difficult to manage and balance the, those competing interests, which is a very difficult thing to do. Um, uh, we, you know, it would be not, everyone would like lower taxes and more spending. Uh, that's not consistent uh, with, with fiscal sustainability. And so difficult choices are going to have to be made. And I think it does seem, I just thought, very likely that, that some of the action is going to have to be on the tax side. And from an economic point of view, where should the government be looking 
for for extra revenue. So again, I think that that's very, very political choice, but I think it is important, and uh, from a uh, from a fiscal sustainability point of view, that that is done in a way that's efficient, uh, that doesn't damage growth in the economy, and it seems to be fair, because uh, uh, all those things are really required uh, to sustain revenues in the economy and public support for the for, for the fiscal fiscal system. So the council doesn't particularly take a view on what forms those are. But we are concerned that, for example, something like income tax, which as we've just seen during the crisis is a very progressive tax with a, with a broad base, uh, you know, taking that off the table is going to make it more challenging to, to reach uh, a good balance between these various objectives. Obviously, there's a lot of pressure on spending this year and pressure on borrowing. Uh, we've gone from the position of expecting a small surplus this year to, to a pretty large deficit. Is, is there a limit to the amount the government uh, can or should borrow this year and next? Interest rates are low. Some people say we should just, you know, we, sh- we should just keep borrowing and, and do what needs to be done. So, so I think for, obviously with with, with the, the debt to GNI, the debt to national income being so high, um, that, that obviously is a, a concern and a, and a sensible question to raise. But I think, as you said, interest rates are incredibly low. Um, uh, and that makes it a very good environment for financing. And I think it's also what, what's critical is that if the government weren't to provide stimulus or support these sectors of the economy, uh, the chances that there will be lasting damage to the economy would be that much higher. Uh, And that would actually undermine fiscal sustainability. So I think provided that stimulus measures are uh, are temporary, that they're targeted, that they're well designed, uh, I I think that very much is the priority. And Ireland is fortunate that in this environment, this low interest rate environment, but also one where the government's own fiscal credibility means that it can it can also it contributes to its low borrowing costs. I think in that environment, I, I think the, the the real focus should be on, on supporting the economy. Uh, and I think the question of, of rebalancing the public finances, fortunately, uh, unlike in the financial crisis, can wait until we're a bit further down the road in terms of the recovery. But is it a case the more we borrow now, the more pain we ha- we have to take later, or is that the wrong way to look at it? Obviously, the more we borrow now, the, the, the more, uh, in, in some sense, you know, that debt will be around in, in, the, in the future. But I, I think it's, uh, uh, again, I think it's not, a, it's not an urgent and uh, a major concern uh, at this point. And I think it is necessary to do the right things now to support the economy, just as it will be in a few years' time to get the public to, to take the action to put debt uh, back on a, a downward path, which ultimately will need to be done. And finally, uh, Sebastian, just looking at the international economy, the European economy, generally financial markets are strong, but the mood around the place, business confidence is is weak, uh, has improved a bit, but it's still very shaky. Would you be more optimistic uh, now than you would have been a few months ago that uh, the world economy and the Euro- Europe in particular can pull out of this in some kind of reasonable shape? Yeah, I, I think there are reasons to be more confident. I think there is less uncertainty than there was. Things are still very uncertain, but I think compared to where we were in April and May, uh, I think we are. You know, a key thing is what's happening on the public health side. We're not there yet, but we've clearly seen progress in treatments and and progress towards a vaccine, which we too will hope will uh, will work. I think we've seen that the economy is more resilient uh, than probably we expected as well. Um, so I think there's a number of signs that are encouraging, but we are still in a very difficult. Um, uh, situation, and I think the government—it's a very challenging time for the government to, to navigate its way through the years ahead. Okay, Sebastian Marnes, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all we've time for this week. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan, with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, goodbye, 
and thanks very much for listening. 